Barbara and Earl Petty didn't stand a chance. But before I tell you why, let me ask you to play a little game with me. I want you to take a look at the people sitting in your pew and in the few pews on either side of you. Choir, pay attention to the choir acolytes, kind of join in them. And I want you to, in your mind, gather a group of about a dozen or 15 people. So take a minute to look around. If you need to stretch and see, just get a look at the people who are sitting around you, some of whom you'll know in the pew next to you. Some might be strangers, but just, just get in your mind a group of 12 or 15 people, all right? Now imagine that you are on a plane and that plane makes an emergency landing in the middle of the ocean. You scramble into a life raft before the plane sinks out of sight and that group of people sitting around you is the same group of people with you in the life raft. You with me so far? Before long, it becomes clear to you and everyone in the raft that the raft isn't big enough for all of you. You've begun taking on water and the raft is sinking fast. Someone has to go. In fact, a quick assessment of the situation produces the incontrovertible fact that two people need to be thrown overboard or else the raft will sink and everyone will perish. Now, for the purposes of this exercise, not unlike the movie Titanic, it is pointless to ask whether you could take turns in the raft or whether somehow you could shift your weight around or bail water fast enough to avoid the necessity of sending two people to their deaths. Just accept the limits of the exercise and ask yourself in your group, whom are you throwing overboard? I'm not going to ask you to say, but look around at your group. And decide in your mind which two are being sent to their deaths. Which two people in those pews would you vote off of your bright yellow floating island? And why? I asked the same question to a group of people who gathered at a Theology on Tap event back in Decatur, Alabama. That group met every week not to study a book but to talk theology And it turns out that that question was one of the better conversation starters that I came up with. In the end, Barbara and Earl Petty were voted off the raft unanimously. (laughs) Both were in their 80s and by far the oldest people in the group. She was a violinist. He played the trombone, but both had retired a long time ago. Their children were all independent and healthy, and both the petties and all the people around them felt that if anyone needed to go into the drink, it should be they. I wonder whether you came to a similar conclusion. Do you share that instinctive belief that older people's lives are somehow less important to preserve, less valuable than the lives of younger people? If you think that sounds crazy, think about it this way. Don't we all feel a greater sense of tragedy when a teenager dies than when an octogenarian passes on? But what if I told you that the only reason we feel that way is because we have been fooled into thinking that death is a natural consequence of life. 
What if I told you that our faith teaches the exact opposite? And that in today's gospel lesson, Jesus challenges the assumption that death is an unavoidable reality. But to get there, we have to hear this story as more than a miraculous resuscitation. We need to recognize the role that it plays in the gospel writer's deepening portrayal of Jesus as the Son of God. Since the second chapter of John's gospel account, in one miraculous sign after another, John has been building the case for Jesus' divinity. Last Sunday, we heard the story of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. And at one point in the story, that once blind man described the unparalleled nature of what Jesus had done by saying, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of someone born blind. If Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. By the time we get to today's gospel story, just two chapters later, it seems that Jesus' reputation as a -a one-of-a-kind miracle worker has become well-known. Did you notice how both of Lazarus' sisters, first Martha and then Mary, said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both understood that if Jesus had just gotten there in time, he would have been able to keep their brother alive. Later on, when Jesus was weeping outside the tomb of his friend, those in the crowd looked on and asked, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? The point that John the Gospel writer seems to be making is that the kind of person who had the power to open the eyes of someone born blind would surely have had the power to heal his sick friend if only he had gotten there earlier. But Jesus didn't want to get there earlier. When he heard that his friend Lazarus was deathly ill, instead of dropping everything and rushing to his bedside, Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for God's glory so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Accordingly, John tells us even though Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, he decided to stay where he was for two more days, long enough to be sure that Lazarus had died. Why did he linger and head to Bethany only after it was too late? Because with Jesus It is never too late. Because John wants us to know that Jesus is more than an incredible miracle worker. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And that means that Jesus is even the Lord over life and death. No one has the power to bring someone back from the four days dead besides God. There is no spell. There is no incantation. There is no prayer that would work. Not even a once in a millennium miracle worker could do such a thing. Only the one who has ultimate power over the universe and everything in it could call Lazarus out of the tomb. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that changes everything. 
Most of us can muster enough faith to believe that after we die, something good will be waiting for us. Although we don't really know exactly what we're waiting for, we do maintain that generic amorphous hope that we will go to heaven when we die. But how many of us have enough faith to recognize that Jesus' victory over death is not just a bit of good news that waits for us on the other side of the grave, but it's an earth-shattering, nature-redefining truth that reorients everything we know about this life and the life that awaits us. Jesus' power over death reminds us that God did not create us out of the dust of the earth and breathe into our nostrils the breath of life only to allow that breath to leave us when our bodies are too old for this world. God did not establish an endless cycle of birth and life and death as the foundation upon which the universe is built. Death is not the natural consequence of life. It is not the end result of the life that God has breathed into creation. It is the tragic consequence of a brokenness in creation that Jesus came to restore. Jesus is more than the means by which we cheat death or escape its effect. He is the one through whom death itself has been put to death. Now, if you're having a hard time figuring out how Jesus' victory over death is real and complete, even though the people we love still die, you're not alone. I want you to know that I don't understand how it works either. I don't know how it is that this universe and all the matter and energy within it, although governed by the laws of thermodynamics, will someday give way to a way of being that isn't ruled by death or decay. I don't know how that works. I don't understand it. But I take comfort in knowing that Martha didn't understand it either. With tears streaming down her face, she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask him. Instinctively, Martha knew that Jesus was more than a miracle worker, but she still couldn't quite understand the significance of the one who stood before her, Jesus didn't hesitate. I am the resurrection and the life, he said to her. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, he said, coaxing from her a faith she didn't even know she had. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. We can believe that too, even though we cannot see clearly what is being given to us. Martha's faith becomes our faith as we, like her, grapple with a reality we cannot fully understand, and yet a reality we give our lives fully to. Every time someone we love dies, we experience the grief and pain that come with that loss. And so did Jesus. 
He wept those same tears that we weep when a friend or family member dies. And when someone is taken from us by death in an untimely fashion, we often feel anger and confusion at what should not have been. And so did Jesus. When he saw Mary crying, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved, moved to the point of trembling with indignance at the thought that death could take his friend away. Even the one who had the power to bring Lazarus back from the dead experienced the sting of death in this life. Our grief, therefore, is not a sign of faithlessness, but a mark of love. But because of Jesus, we know that our grief must give way to a new hope. Not because we hope that one day death will be no more, but because we have already seen in Jesus Christ God's victory over the inevitability of death. In Christ, even the laws of nature become subject to the law of God's unending love. Thanks be to God. Amen.